Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Hi, Bill. Hey, happy Friday, Ward. Happy Friday. It's been a long week, it, it seems like. Construction continues for the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center here at the Naval Institute. Yeah, they are moving out. Yep. That, that uh, Whiting-Turner Construction Company does not mess around. They're really doing uh, deliberate work here. Yep. As we've mentioned on the show before, we expect to do a groundbreaking yeah, about this time, the ri- a ribbon cutting, ribbon is what cutting, I meant to right? Say. About this time about next, this time year, next maybe year, maybe January, February next yeah. year, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, they had to do. We're we're tying this state of the art, world class new conference center uh, into our existing building, which is part of the 1942 World War II uh, hospital building here on on Hospital Point. So, of course, when they dug into the ground floor uh, of the existing building, they found some things that they didn't expect to find, and they yeah, didn't the, find. It some turns things. out the floor plans, the yeah. architectural plans, are not we're not completely accurate, accurate right? <laughs> but that uh, you know, eighty year old building, that's probably not yep. to be uh, uh, you know, to be expected. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, so, but anyway, um, you know, things are moving moving out, and uh, they'll start to pour some concrete and probably go up. I, w- I would guess probably by the end of uh, March, if not sooner than that. So that's uh, very exciting. Uh, we had uh, this week, Wednesday, uh, we had the uh, editorial board meeting uh, for the Naval Institute for Proceedings, uh, approved a bunch of great proceedings articles. Uh, the team right now is working on the March International Navy's issue. Uh, always excited about that because we go out to uh, the chiefs of all the foreign navies around the world and ask them to um, provide an, am- an answer, an input on uh, a, a, a question that we pick for them. Uh, we've got, I think, 22 countries uh, that are in this year, which is terrific. And uh, we've got one or two more that may join in time to be online only. But um, anyway, the, the response has been very, very good. So excited about that. And then on Tuesday, we did another in our Maritime Security Dialogue series at CSIS. We had Vice Admiral Woody Lewis, who is the commander of Second Fleet. Uh, as our listeners may know that we recently reestablished Second Fleet, and uh, they have a vital new operational mission as well as their traditional training mission. Uh, so Admiral Lewis uh, explained how he can wear a NORTHCOM hat, how he can wear a UCOM hat, um, what the flex schedule has done in terms of how they're executing and, and what the op tempo is like and the logistics chain to support that. It was really a fascinating conversation. So... Uh, if you're in the greater D.C. area, when we do these, they're always great. So check out our events page on usni.org to see the upcoming ones. It's not to be missed. Yeah, about every six weeks, two months or so, we have a Maritime Security Dialogue. That's a partnership that's been ongoing for a few years now with CSIS. And uh, somebody said, well, why do you guys partner with CSIS? Well, Arlie Burke yep. was one of the fa- was the founder, the I founder, think, of, the CSIS. founder of CSIS. And he, when he founded it, he was the president of the Naval Institute. And he was also the CNO at the time. And that's back when the church and state was not separated, where active duty naval officers did comprise the board. And then in the early 90s, that was segmented in a way that we believe is very beneficial in terms of the independent forum. But yes, Arlie Burke uh, has uh, DNA in both USNI and CSIS. So that partnership uh, has a great heritage about it. And yeah. it's always amazing what, what happens when those two organizations get together. It's a bit like Navy Notre Dame football, right? Yeah, so they people- owe us. <laughs> We kept them from being shut down in World War II. Exactly. All right. Well, um, let's talk. Uh, we have a guest on the line today from uh, San Diego who has the lead feature article in the February issue of uh, Proceedings. 
Uh, it is uh, Captain Daniel Stewart, U.S. Navy retired, a Navy SEAL captain, uh, and his article starts on page, uh, let me get it here, 1819. Uh, it is titled, None of Us is That Man All Must Aspire to Be. Captain Stewart, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Well, thank you, Bill Lord. So this article, uh, let me just read, read the deck from the first page. Uh, so the, the SEAL professional ethos serves as a reminder for naval special warfare and any who aspire to high standards that excellence must be earned every day on and off duty. Uh, so what inspired you to write this? Well, Bill, I was, um, I, for some time I've been frustrated with, uh, some of the incidents that occurred in our community that were getting uh, considerable um, visibility through the media, et cetera. And uh, I felt that there was a, a, a fundamental issue at stake here that needed to be addressed. And uh, it, it was one of those things that is, it's, it's nothing new. It's, you know, every culture, every organization has its culture and every culture has its problems. And uh, we just had a few things that had been uh, allowed to lapse in terms of the attention given to them. And I felt an article might be the, uh, the catalyst to, A, start a dialogue, and, and B, really move the, the pendulum forward for some of the younger generation who may, uh, may not be quite as uh, uh, informed of the tradition and the expectations of the Navy. So the article is broken down into five lessons and a final lesson. Let's uh, review them one at a time. So lesson one is elite versus elitism. Toward the end of that section, you say, on occasion, and in small but telling numbers, SEALs have conflated membership in an elite organization with elitism. So what are we talking about there? Well, the way I've always described it to, to my troops is, you know, if you think you're elite, first First, that means you surpass every standard, not just what you consider the standards for your organization, but the Navy standards, professional standards, whatever, the entire organizational uh, uh, standard that is set. But beyond that, it's, you're, you're living this, this, um, this ethos that says, I'm not elite. I'm trying to be the best I can be every day. If I consider myself elite, then you're already into a realm of elitism, which is which is detrimental because then you start get, making exceptions for yourself. Well, I'm because of this, I can do that. Because of that, I don't have to do this, and uh, that's a slippery slope. So, what what elements out in the field sort of feed that? Um, have you seen on a tactical level? The the teams, the SEAL teams, and I'll just refer to them as the teams. They're very egalitarian, and you when you go through buds. Um, the basic underwater demolition SEAL training, which is the only avenue into the SEAL teams, um, you you become you form quite a bond, and the officer enlisted division is kind of um, I won't say it's erased, but it's it's set aside in many respects because you're going through the exact same training altogether, no differentiation uh, for six months, and that tends to create tremendous bonds, but it also tends to sometimes make it difficult for the um, both sides of the equation, the officer and the enlisted, to understand where the lines traditionally are drawn and why they are drawn where they are. And uh, so I think that uh, once you once you uh, move on from that training, that's pretty much, uh, you know, you're inoculated with that, that attitude. And it's sometimes uh, difficult to, to break old habits to say, well, okay, there's a time and place for everything. There's a time for the camaraderie and for the, the familiarity. And there's also a time when we, we reinforce the, the basic standards of the lines of discipline. The question that came up in my mind when the, the Gallagher situation was in the, in the headlines is where were the officers? And is this back to what you're talking about where those, that differentiation to some degree is erased? 
Yeah, the, the Gallagher situation is is uh, is is a very uncomfortable one because it's it's drawn such attention from the highest levels of the government on down, and it's it's not, in my opinion, well portrayed, or I should should say, objectively uh, portrayed in the media. Uh, but we'll leave that at that. We'll leave that where it is. Um, the the issue with uh, the the leadership issue that you address is is definitely a problem in the in the fact that. My attitude is, and what I've told people from the first moment I heard about the Gallagher, uh, the accusations, was that no man in any organization, platoon, team, squad, ship, that threatens his own shipmates should be in the service, let alone the SEAL teams, should not wear the uniform of the U.S. military. And uh, I think most people who served in the military would, would understand that immediately. Uh, and so you have a situation here where apparently – and according to many, many statements of the people in the platoon, he was not acting as a chief. He was not acting in the best interest of the, the platoon or the, or the nation. And so they came forward. What, what you run into is too often, particularly with a, a small organization, the senior enlisted folks, they're the ones that had the most operational experience. So folks defer to them, tend to put them on a pedestal and say, well, he's got to be right because he's the chief. And, uh, and it's very, very hard, and this is true. I was a surface warfare officer before I was a SEAL, and it's tough when you walk in as the, the, the O-1, the butter bar, as we used to refer to it, and you have to deal with a chief with 20, 25 years of experience, and, and you're, you're going to tell him what to do. Well, you're not telling him what to do. You're, you're responsible for the, what takes place. He's the expert, the technical expert, and you have to form a relationship and, and make it work. Uh, and I think in, within the team sometimes, and particularly within the Gallagher situation, Part of the problem there was people didn't realize their respective roles, didn't exercise them. And then when it was well late into the game, people started coming forward and saying, this, this can't stand. So good on them. They exercised the moral courage to come forward. And then and now we find ourselves in a place where they're being chastised and threatened and everything else. So it continues to be a very, very unhealthy uh, situation. So with respect to lesson number one, would you say that uh, in that circumstance, the chief was guilty of buying into the elitism part of uh, the warfare, especially where the rules don't necessarily apply to him because he's a SEAL? I would say he personifies that. Yes. Moving on to lesson number two, Daniel, uh, never believe your own propaganda. And uh, I think you and I chatted as we were uh, working on this article together. You wrote it, and then I was the editor for it, and uh, I had served in a SEAL team back 25 years ago as the intelligence officer in a team. And I saw this, I saw some really incredible human beings who are Navy SEALs who who uh, did not have giant egos. They were uh, very humble about who they were and their capabilities and what they what they brought to the fight. And then I saw some others who were, you know, uh, you know, ex- shining examples of look at me, look at how great I am, look how how big my biceps are, right? And and that. <laughs> <laughs> so so give us some examples of don't believe your own uh, propaganda and and where you saw it done well. And, and perhaps not well. Well, the first thing I would say is and it's sort of the thesis for the, the entire article is uh, the SEAL ethos, which uh, you include, thank you, in the, in the proceedings, uh, was something that was uh, developed uh, about 15 years ago now. And uh, it was meant to be sort of a touchstone for, for SEALs. We had up to that time, we didn't have anything that sort of stated what, who we were and, and what we were trying to be. And so the ethos was created. And what I have found is that too often in the, within the teams, 
it talks about, hence the title of this article, that man. It describes that man who, who, who tries to be the best he can possibly be, who understands his responsibility to support uh, the Constitution the, uh, and protect the, uh, the nation and its, uh, its citizens. Uh, but the fact of the matter is no one has ever reached that level described in ethos. It's an aspirational thing, and uh, it should be viewed as an aspirational thing so people don't get in their mind once you pin on your trident, which is the seal uh, insignia, uh, that suddenly you become, I am that man as described. You're not, you won't ever be, but if you aspire every day to try to be that man, which the vast majority of SEALs do every day, whether it's physical, mental, professional, with their families, etc., cetera, um, you're, you'll be a better man. Uh, but so you aspire to that. And I think a lot of times, and as you kind of described the builder, you, you can find all kinds of folks in the teams, just like any other organization. But the true quiet professionals are the ones that they don't beat their chest, they don't brag, they just quietly go about their their uh, their job, always with the intent of making it themselves and their organization, you know, uh, better. And um, we succeed pretty well in that. And one of the things that the teams do in particular is they we try to learn uh, learn from failure. So our exercises, our training are very realistic. And uh, the whole idea is, well, if it doesn't work in training, if you fail, fail in training, that's okay because you just learned a lesson that's tremendously applicable to a real operation. And we consistently apply that, and uh, it, it, it proves itself out in combat. And most, uh, most certainly in the last 19 years, it's been very evident. So I think I know what the answer to this question is, but you mentioned the deluge of media attention, SEAL-authored books, and general public fascination in the post-9-11 world. Uh, has that made this particular lesson more acute? I think it has, and it also kind of highlights the difficulty. Admiral McRaven, who was one of our retired you know, senior SEALs, uh, had written books, and he, had, he, he talked to the, the troops periodically, and he would say, you know, writing of books, is not a bad thing. And he would tell a story about what brought him into the Special Operations Forces originally was watching the movie Green Beret with John Wayne. And uh, he said, so there's a tremendous upside to, the, to books being written and, and stories being told, but you have to understand, A, you never compromise anything in those stories or those books that might give away operational secrets or put anyone within the community at, at risk. Uh, and so there's a balance there. And this very, a very uh, defined pr- procedure, as you all know, in terms of if you do write a book, it has to go through the wickets and being reviewed and all that kind of thing. Um, and what, what unfortunately, more than a fair number of the books written by SEALs, kind of back to what something you mentioned a few minutes ago, seem to be more self-aggrandizement, you know, patting themselves on the back and saying, this is, this is why I'm so great, as opposed to, this is, this is what we were meant to do. This is why we SEALs are privileged, truly privileged, to serve the nation in a special way. And um, and those are two very disparate messages. Daniel, we've talked a little bit about the SEAL ethos, and it's a cornerstone of this article. And, and for those who can uh, read it in the magazine, it starts on page 22. Uh, I'll just, you know, a couple of things for people who, who have not read the SEAL ethos, some of the, the key sentences in it. In times of war or uncertainty, there's a special breed of warrior ready to answer our nation's call. Forged by adversity, he stands alongside America's finest special operations. Uh, to protect America and their way of life. I am that man. So that's that phrase that you referred to a minute ago, that man. Uh, my trident is a symbol of honor and heritage. My loyalty 
to country and team is beyond reproach. I do not advertise the nature of my work. I serve with honor on and off the battlefield. So those are, you know, just a couple of the the touch points of that ethos. And and I remember, you know, at the start of your article, you talk about this special handpicked group of people back in 2005. There were 40 or so, uh, you know, officers enlisted, warrant officers, uh, you know, you know, petty officers to master chiefs, lieutenants to captains who got together to write this thing. And at the end of it, one of them, a master chief said, I want this read at my funeral. I want my children and grandchildren to know this was the type of man that I was. And then in your article, you say over and over again, um, that it's, it's aspirational. Nobody, you know, nobody, uh, uh, rises to that level, or at least doesn't rise to that level every day, but they get up the next day and they say, you know what, I fell, so I fell short, I've got to try harder, I'm going to keep keep going, I'm going to be better at, at this, better, and I'm going to, you know, uh, link arms with my shipmates and my teammates, and we are going to be better uh, together, and we'll be quiet professionals together. Um, moving on to your, your next lesson learned is number three, loyalty versus integrity. So talk about the tension there between uh, loyalty to teammates and overall integrity. Well, Bill, that's a great segue because if I may borrow from what you just read, uh, the, the, virtually the next sentence after the last quote you made is, uncompromising integrity is my standard. That's right out of the SEAL ethos. And the, the, the point I try to make is, and I referred to it earlier, you form this bond of loyalty starting in the, in the basic underwater demolition SEAL training that all SEALs go through. And there, there comes a point where, and it happens in everyone's career, not just in, in the SEAL community, but in everyone's career, where you're forced to, you're facing a decision of, do I stand by my shipmate and, and tell what I want, not what I really know to be the truth, but I, I need to be loyal to him because he is my shipmate. And I put that in front of what is the real issue, the integrity to, to tell the truth. And uh, it's, uh, there's an old phrase from the, uh, the, from the Army, the, the hard right over the easy wrong. And I think uh, we're all faced with that in civilian life as well as in the military. But I think one of the huge factors, uh, that which we, in the, in the, particularly in the special operations community, is this, this aspect of, of that loyalty. Is it misplaced loyalty? Not to say loyalty is bad. But there's a hierarchy, and buddy loyalty, if you will, does not stand as high in is telling the truth when it's when it needs to be told, and and telling it honestly, obviously the truth, but in, in in a way that reflects that I you may be my buddy, and I die for you on the battlefield, but this is a higher calling. This is an issue of integrity, and I will tell the truth as required. And you um, point out, and, and you mentioned it earlier that officers and enlisted go through the same six months of training at BUDS. It's incredibly hard. Uh, there's, to some extent, the uh, uh, the difference between officer and enlisted is sort of broken down because they're swim buddies and they're they're in the sand together and in the pool together and in the surf together. Uh, and and in the um, in this part of the article, lesson three, you mentioned that within. Um, the military, there can be confusion, and the NSW community serves as an example from day one in BUDS. SEAL trainees are taught, look after your swim buddy, and they will look after you. And so that that loyalty to teammate, shipmate um, is incredibly strong, but at some time, people need to make the hard right, as you just said, instead of the easy wrong. Uh, if, if that teammate does something that uh, is bad judgment, illegal, 
a breach of integrity, a breach of rules of engagement in combat, for example, uh, that's when it's time, okay, uh, you know, taking care of my teammate and, and covering for him or her is not the right answer here, even though he's, you know, is my shipmate or my, uh, my teammate. Okay, so move on to lesson four. And this kind of goes back to what we we're talking about in terms of a challenge to uh, a senior ranking individual who may be junior in experience. So lesson four is trust and respect versus popularity. Again, I, I hark back to my fleet experience before I uh, got into the into the SEAL teams, and uh, it's not as, as uh, difficult there, uh, I, I don't think, in, in my experience at least, in, as it is in the teams, because at least in the fleet, the distinction from day one is very clear between the officer enlisted, you know, separate uh, wardroom and, and chief's mess and things like that. All wonderful things, all, you know, thousands, literally thousands of years of tradition in some of those things. Um, but the point uh, w- within the teams is often the confusion arises back to that, those initial days at Buds, you know, when you're so close to each other and you get so familiar with each other and, and, and that, that when the time comes to um, take, le- take uh, whether it's a platoon or a squad, whatever the command position is for the junior officer, for instance, um, he's, he's torn between, well, I, I want the guys to like me because we've all been through this stuff together and now I'm with a bigger team and, I, and it's not a matter of being liked, in my opinion. The, the whole structure of the U.S. military is based on respect and trust, trust up and down the chain of command, seniors to juniors, juniors to seniors or subordinates, and, and the, 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 uh, the confidence that each will do his job in turn. Uh, and I think one of the problems we run into is the confusion. Well, if you're trying too much to be liked, sometimes it's hard to make that call as the senior officer to uh, say, we're not going to do this or we're not going to do it this way. Or I'm going to countermand the chief because that's not right. And uh, one, again, we're back to that sort of slippery slope. If, the, if you don't understand and exercise your command position, regardless of uh, what others think, then you're not exercising command. And, uh, we, we've seen that, um, you know, there have been examples of that uh, recently. You just, you mentioned one, I think, uh, uh, earlier with the Gallagher situation. I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on that. But I think if at a young age, um, or at an early point in their careers, particularly if the junior officers are, are there, those things are stressed and stressed in ways that make them face some of these decisions early on, they'll understand. The other point of that is, as you get farther in your career, if you've been one who tends to to um, uh, err toward the side of liking to be or preferring to be liked or trying to be liked as opposed to just maintaining the respect and respectful distances, um, I think it's it gets progressively harder as you get more senior uh, to, to to draw that line. Well, I didn't do it when I was junior, and you know it's not. And you, as I say, this slippery slope. So it's not unique to the to the teams, but it is something that I caution uh, across the services that you, you have to be aware of. And and, uh, and and part of it is exercising it both in training and, and uh, any kind of operations, emphasizing these kinds of more moral slash ethical issues than uh, just the, the the tactics and techniques and procedures. So lesson five: rules, ambiguity, and leadership. There's a cool. Uh, statement at the end. It says, lesson relearned. There is no sensitive, intrusive, negative, transformational, or transactional leadership. There is simply good leadership. So talk to us about that lesson. 
Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a real believer. I'm a Naval Academy graduate, so I had a lot of things drummed to me at an early age, and you know, and uh, but I've had a chance uh, a few decades now to reflect on some of that. And what I've come to the conclusion is that the basic tenets of leadership are the basic tenets of leadership. And you tend to find people uh, trying to define, well, there's positive leadership and there's negative leadership. There's uh, there's inspirational leadership. There are all these these adjectives to modify leadership and to explain why in the business world it's different than it is in the military, than it is in the clergy, than it is in education. And, and, uh, and certainly there are differences, absolutely. But the basic tenets of what it takes, I mentioned something a few minutes ago about mutual respect. You know, if I expect you to, to, if I expect you to respect me, A, I have to earn that respect. And I don't deserve any more respect than what I give to those who work for and uh, above and below me. And so it's one of those issues that, um, you know, when we're trying to, trying to bring folks along that in, in both in their development their, and as a, as an operator and this and that, that this respect issue is, is extremely important. And I think, um, I'll just leave it at that. I think that's the the, the most important thing is this, this. There are basic tenets, and and if you understand those, you could probably write them down in, 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 on one piece of paper, double space. They don't change. They haven't changed since the time of whenever the first two folks got together and decided they wanted to collaborate or cooperate to, to hunt game. You know, there had to be certain rules. Someone was in charge. Someone followed, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I'm oversimplifying it. But by the same token, when people try to make it too difficult and, and start to make these these fine distinctions between this and that, I find that too often is just an excuse to say you're just not exercising this, you know, this the the requirements of basic leadership. Make the hard call. Look somebody in the eye and tell them they're not doing their job, and then and be prepared if someone tells you the same thing that you buckle down and square away and you know try to be that man next day. Daniel, you, you mentioned uh, just going back a little bit to uh, to lesson four on on trust and respect, and uh, this keeps coming up in the conversation. Um, you make the point that uh, concepts of leadership, followership, trust, respect can be taught, but they have to be experienced to be fully grasped. And uh, you you go on to say uh, viable experience can be garnered only under demanding circumstances. Uh, and, and it's not just for SEALs, but uh, other communities as well, such as leading a SEAL platoon in a live night, live fire, night assault, standing officer of the deck on a ship during a nighttime, high seas, underway replenishment, coxing, cox, yeah, coxing, uh, small craft, uh, through congested, contested littorals. Um, and, and this gets a little bit in, in, uh, proceedings articles, over the past, you know, you, you pick how many years. There's been a lot of, uh, in the last 25 years, I know at least, uh, a lot about the zero defect mentality and about, um, you know, micromanagement, uh, in the, in the military and not wanting to let people fail. And so therefore, um, you know, seniors, uh, micromanaging or being on the bridge or, or making sure that, you know, uh, responsibilities are sort of delegated up, uh, instead of delegated down. I'm curious your take on, um, you know, are the, are the SEALs in their training, uh, are they being delegated down to the appropriate level of responsibility? Are they given the really hard opportunities at the appropriate levels to prove themselves, to gain not the respect just of their men, but also their own self-respect? That's a great question. I think, and I'll hark back in a moment here to my slow days, but I think in the teams, absolutely they are. 
And uh, that's part of what allows them, I won't say to mature fast, but to, to grasp the, uh, the, uh, the realities of combat and their type of operations, which, you know, we do far more than just uh, perform in combat uh, every day. Uh, and so I think within the teams, we've, we've got that down, not to a science, but that's pretty effective. Uh, some would argue that we accelerate the promotion of our folks too fast uh, and not give them enough deck plate time, to use a, a nautical term, um, and, and so they don't garner as much experience as an, uh, as an E4 and E5 b- before we accept them, expect them to be a, a, a successful LPO or, and or cheat. But I would go back to your, your comment about the zero defect and, and the, the risk. And I always, I always hark back to my days on the bridge of a ship, and I had two COs. And one was, uh, was a commissioned officer straight out of college. The other was a Mustang, 10 years of uh, enlisted experience before he got his commission, and now he was commanding a ship. And they had very, very different styles of leadership. But both of them, when I was a junior officer and I stood on the bridge of a ship with 350 men responsible for them as we're driving this ship through whatever oceans of the world or, or busy harbors or whatever, that it was the responsibility of the commanding officer to decide whether I was up to the task. And in order to do that, a written test doesn't measure whether I'm up to the task. Certainly you had, you know, the things you had to prove you know, on paper, taking tests and doing your PMS and all that kind of stuff, PQS, excuse me. Um, but it was the larger issue that the, the both CEOs understood. I won't call it baptism by fire, but it is in effect that it, it, with various degrees of fire. Um, the only way to prove your confidence uh, and competence was by forcing you to uh, to accept the responsibility for these in certain in circumstances were which create a lot of stress and pressure, and uh, they never did that without being right there on the spot, ready at a moment's notice to assume command and prevent you know uh, a collision or anything else like that. But they recognize you have to taste it in order to be prepared, and and as important as that is, as I used to tell my troops uh, when we were doing various things, I would say you know don't. Don't show me you know how to do this. Don't show me that your your professionalism is that. Show yourself. If you're convinced that you can do this job, you can do it anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances. You need to have that confidence. I already have confidence in you, but I just want to make sure you've got that confidence in your in yourself. Not cockiness, confidence. So you uh, quote Admiral Colin Green, um, who's the head of uh, Navy Special Warfare. And it's sort of, uh, I don't know if the word's ironic or what, but the date-time group for this this writing that you're quoting is 20 August 2019, and about a year later, he's going to resign his commission. Um, and so he's, he writes here, Our forces drifted from our Navy core values, the tenets of NSW ethos, due to a lack of action of all levels of leadership. And then he says, We are all U.S. naval officers and sailors first and foremost, and we will realign ourselves to these standards immediately. We own the problem and the solutions. Again, sort of uh, uh, sad and ironic that uh, a year after he wrote that, he's, he's resigning his commission, some would say, uh, in, the, in the wake of um, how he got cross-headed with uh, the Gallagher camp and uh, the commander-in-chief. So you end on a high note, um, and you're talking about that this community – does have a history of self-initiated adaptation and improvement. So where's your, um, 
where's your mood and your uh, barometer with respect to how things are going to go in the coming months and years? I'll just tell you that, in my, again, humble opinion, uh, this issue uh, of, of culture that we need to address, as Admiral Green mentioned, and, and also the, the comprehensive review that the commander of uh, U.S. SOCOM uh, put out to all forces, not just his naval special warfare forces, but to all the components of special operations that we need to tighten up. We need to review some of these things. The, the disciplinary issues recently have caused to, uh, you know, jeopardize the trust the nation has us, has in us. Um, to, to answer your question, I think the solution lies in the, the senior enlisted. I've always felt that the officers, no matter how high a rank, uh, or how low a rank, can, can, can identify a problem. They can articulate it well. They can go forward and say, we must do this, we must do this, et cetera. And, and that's their job. But the reality is, in, in, in the Navy, we call the chiefs, the E7s, 8s, and 9s, we call them the backbone of the Navy. And that's not by coincidence that we call them, they are what makes the, the Navy work or not work. And within the SEAL community, we have tremendous, tremendous uh, chiefs across the spectrum. And uh, I personally think that a lot of them are poised to, say, to take an action that's good. Now that we've got, now that people understand, we can take this problem on. We can fix this problem. And I would argue that, in fact, NSW nor any other uh, naval organization can fix itself just by officer's dictum or, or policy. It has to be that the chiefs believe it, buy into it, and strap it on and make it happen. And I have all the confidence in the world that NSW can, the chiefs and the community at large, but I'm, I'm focusing right on the, the folks who have this, who can make it happen. And that, that is the chief. As an editorial comment, I wanted to just say two things, uh, Daniel, about your article and, and to our listeners as well. Uh, the first one is I, I, I commend this article to all of our readers, all of our listeners, not just those who are interested in Navy SEALs or, or who are Navy SEALs, but this has uh, tremendous lessons for all levels of leadership, anyone who aspires to excellence, whether you're a submariner, whether you're flying aircraft, whether you're a Marine, it doesn't matter whether you're a midshipman, an ROTC cadet, etc. cetera. Uh, if, you're, if, if you aspire to be a person of integrity, a professional of arms, uh, and someone who serves the nation to your utmost ability, this article will be one that you'll probably want to keep with you for, uh, for quite a long time. The second point I want to make, uh, and this is to... Um, also, just any SEALs out there that are listening, uh, but to all tribes, and we've been talking about this here at the Naval Institute, that proceedings and uh, uh, the Naval Institute as an open forum, we want to be the place for conversations about naval integration. And the CNO and the Commandant of the Marine Corps have been uh, you know, increasingly talking about how in order to uh, thrive and survive and to dominate in modern warfare against peer competitors, uh, the Navy and the Marine Corps and, and uh, the, all the sea services, the Joint Force have got to integrate very, very well and effectively. And we want to have in proceedings, we want to have, we want to have articles and content from across the, the sea services. So if you're a SEAL, if you're a coastal riverine combatant, if you're an aviator, a Marine, uh, if you're a Coast Guard, we want your content in proceedings. And we've been, um, uh, we've been lacking for naval special warfare content. 
I put in my editor's page uh, this month with Daniel's uh, article that I hope that this article uh, stimulates some interest within Naval Special Warfare and other communities to write for proceedings. If you're out there and you're listening and you know somebody who's a SEAL or you are a SEAL or somebody from a tribe that's underrepresented in uh, proceedings, you're knocking on an open door if you've got an idea about how to make uh, your tribe better or the sea services uh, writ large uh, better. And so I want to thank you, Daniel, for writing this. Uh, it was one that when we got it back in the fall, we rushed it to our editorial board. The editorial board all unanimously, and this rarely happens, thought it was an, an outstanding article that we should publish quickly. Uh, and so we got it on the slate for February, and it's in the February issue. So uh, Captain Daniel Stewart from San Diego, retired Navy SEAL captain, uh, great to have you in proceedings. His article is called None of Us is That Man All Must Aspire to Be. It's in the February issue of Proceedings starting on page 18 and 19. Uh, and Daniel, I hope we see, it, see you at West when we're out there in San Diego uh, just about four weeks from now. Well, thank you, Bill. I hope to make it. If I tag on to your comment, I would just like to reinforce this is the fourth article I've written for Proceedings, and I started way back as a lieutenant. And uh, as I look back in the hundred and Almost 150 years the proceedings has been a forum for discussion. I would just like to emphasize to all, you know, young, old, officer, enlisted, it doesn't matter. This is the periodical. If you have thoughts, suggestions, et cetera, this is where you can contribute them and have impact. So please uh, double tap on what you said. Sorry, uh, <laughs> seal term. Uh, reinforcing what you said, Bill, to the to the to uh, your listening public. No, we'll use double tap. Love it. That was fantastically said, sir. Um, and the other thing that I'll add is the reason that this is the forum is because it generates outcomes. Um, this isn't just a think tank where we push the P around. The proceedings history of, of creating outcomes is uh, unrivaled in any professional circles. So if you have something that you guys are beefing about in garrison or at the FOB or whatever, why would you submit it to proceedings? Because solutions come from articles and proceedings. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Uh, we'll catch you again uh, next week. We're going to be talking to a uh, Naval Institute Press author on the topic of Iwo Jima. We're coming up on the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Iwo Jima. And next we're going to be doing a lot around Iwo Jima. A lot of so stuff. So keep, keep your eyes peeled on our social uh, pages. We're building a microsite at us9.org. We have buku content from our myriad resources, so we're very much looking forward to that. Amen. And uh, just remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week.